newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. To get insurance, she employed... The Media Project gives you some analysis and commentary on what's going on in the news media with a bunch of veteran journalists who have seen their better days. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> strike that. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, the best is yet to come, man. Yeah, yeah, you know, ain't that right? <laughs> Starting with Dr. Alan Shartok here. How are you doing there? I'm doing well. Um, I'm sitting here waiting with uh, <laughs> bated breath. Bated uh, breath. Waiting how, to... By the way, how do you spell bated breath? B-A-T-E-D. Very uh, good. The man really? has a PhD. Yeah, we're going to talk about spelling here. Yeah. Rosemary Armeo is here, <laughs> investigative journalist and professor. How I would have spelled that wrong. I would have, yeah, too. Yeah, no, he's right. How about yeah. that? Judy Patrick, formerly executive editor of the Schenectady Gazette. Now, Vice President of the New York Press Association. I can spell Scattercook. Is, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Very few people listening can spell Scattercook or pronounce it. I had a publisher who never got acclimated to the Capital Region because he would always say Scattercook. <laughs> Couldn't, you know, really? bear to say it. Right. I had a friend named Paul Zimmett. He went to Camp Scattercook. <laughs> oh, boy. I knew it. And I'm Rex Smith here with you from the Upstate American, formerly the Times Union editor. Since we were talking about spelling, baited, that's a convenient way of noting that there is a little journalistic controversy about how to spell turkey. Turkey. Really? Or what to call it. Not what you eat. Rosemary, what do you think about this? You're well, an editor. We, just getting ready for the show, several of us read a really interesting article that looked at both sides of it. And it's not clear. I mean, normally the rule is you call people or places what they wish to be called. And there certainly is a precedent for this. Burma, the old Burma is now Miramar. Myanmar. Yeah. Myanmar. Yeah. Right? Although Sorry, I think I'm it's gone it back again. Yeah, uh, it goes back and forth. So words matter. And so it's an interesting story. The president of Turkey is pushing for the use of the word Turkey, which is Turkey and Turkish, rather than Turkey, which is our national bird, and we eat it at Thanksgiving. Well, and I was going to mention that, too. Yeah. And it's the subject of lots of jokes, uh, has been for years, that if you wanted to show the country of Turkey, you, you made it a Turkey. And so that all bodes for like, okay, let's call it what it wants to be. But it's also a big push for Erdogan, the, the very autocratic and anti-press president of Turkey, to give him what he wants. That would be a victory for him. So we don't know. The U the U.S. State Department has gone to Turkey. Mm -hmm. The U.N. has accepted it. But part of the difficulty is just typographic because the, oh, it's, yeah. it's oh, T-U oh, yeah. with an umlaut, and we don't tend to use umlauts. Not too much. No. Uh, not too much. Turkey, yeah. 
T-U-R-K-I-Y-E with the umlaut over the U. I don't know. But we switched. You know, we used to call Peking and became Beijing. We still don't quite say things right. Like Shanghai, We I guess we should say Shanghai. You are so smart. I know, I know. This is a real yeah. challenge for radio, isn't it, Alan? I mean, when they, yeah. when they yeah. have these changes in pronunciation, and you have a lot of difficult names you have to pronounce. How do you do it in the radio business? Well, I think what happens is that people make stuff up. So, for example... <laughs> That's not the answer I was so, looking for. Well, so, <laughs> so, for example, Steve Allen used to, you know, yell at the top of his voice, Smuck! Smuck. Now, if you changed a little bit of the pronunciation or the spelling, you'd have a dirty word. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that perplex all of us in the radio business. We, you know, in the newspaper business, we reached a point where we let people call themselves whatever they wanted to call themselves. I mean, we used to say, oh, no, we will call you what's on your birth certificate or what's on your driver's license. But then we, we said, oh, no, people should be able to call themselves of course, whatever name they want to. But it's hard to believe there was a time when we were very insistent that it has to be what you're official name is. And we have a case of this right in Arkansas with the new awful governor there, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who has banned in one of her first acts in taking office the word Latinx, which is a styling that not all Hispanics favor, but many who are gay do favor. So it's an anti-LGBT action as well as, you know, um, trying to call somebody something they want. And of course, there's a long history on what to call African Americans. And the media has often been behind on this. Think about the uh, prefix Ms. Uh, The media was so insistent on keeping with Mrs. and Miss. And even with, you know, I remember when there was a story in my local newspaper in Danville, Illinois, the commercial news about my mom. And I referred to her as Mrs. Ralph Smith Uh throughout, you know. What a strange thing. Well, in obits, when they, even in obits, they list survivors. The brothers always come before the sisters, the uncles before the aunts. I always hated that. Huh. So, yeah, it looks like just simple wording, but behind it is a whole set of baggage, not just not just one piece of baggage, a whole set of luggage of racism, of gender inequality. Misogyny. So it's, misogyny. So it's really good to, I think, at least look at these words and to explain to readers what you're doing. Yeah. Stay tuned, folks. We will hear more about turkey eye and so on. All right. What about theft? Let's talk about how that might have something to do with journalism. It has to do with Project Veritas, which obtained a stolen diary that belonged to Ashley Biden, who is the daughter of Joe Biden. And this group now is in some legal hot water for it because of using this purloined information. Yet it is true that a lot of useful journalism arises out of information that is illegally leaked or hacked or stolen. So is this guy, James O'Keefe, the guy of Project Veritas, is he actually functioning as a journalist here or is he not? What do we think about this notion of using stolen material to produce journalism? Isn't that ethically challenging? Don't you think, Rex, because I'm new to this particular game, but don't you think that has a lot to do what with... What game are we talking about? This game. Oh. We're sitting around here looking at each other. You're smiling so nice. Punditry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, punditry, yes. Yeah. So... You're new to it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Relatively new at 81. So whatever I was going to say, I forgot. <laughs> about the lying, about lying in journalism. I'm sure using stolen material to get across a point in journalism. Well, I get it. I understand why people do it. On the other hand, it can be embarrassing, and it can lead to accusations of malfeasance on the part of the people who do it. Did you understand exactly what I just said? More or less. I don't have any problem with using material that 
is handed to a journalist. You are in a different position, however, if you as the journalist induce the crime or steal the material yourself. And that is often a difficult situation, especially in accessing electronic data, mm. because it is easy enough sometimes to tap into something digitally that is not really yours. And you have to be careful of that as a journalist so that you're not overstepping the line and actually being a thief. That's wrong. There's some wonderful history on this in journalism. Daniel Ellsberg stole what became the Pentagon Papers and turned it over to newspapers and went to jail for it for at least briefly before it got out. I strongly am behind that, and he is a hero. And then there's the Chiquita Banana case where reporters in Cincinnati investigating a big banana company exploiting people in Latin America were given the code for an executive's telephone. So they tapped in the code and got all of his messages. They stupidly wrote that they did this in the story, so they were captured red-handed and were severely punished for it. And the worst punishment was that the paper retracted and apologized for a story that was totally correct. The story was accurate, and they apologized for it. The accuracy and the problems that the story highlighted got lost in the shuffle of the fact that the reporter had stolen the information. Do they still put those bananas in the refrigerator? Well, they're still there and we're paying a lot less for them than bananas really cost. So yeah, the monopoly of those companies continues. In the case of Veritas, O'Keefe, it's really murky. I think he has a record of, if not doing it himself, of actually encouraging others, come to us, we want this material, or we are looking for X, see if you can get it for us. Well, you're and that ex- goes over the line. Well, yep. you're an experienced reporter. You, yep. you have over the years taken information one way yep. or the yep. other. Absolutely. Uh, remember that film where the reporter is looking over the desk? Mm-hmm. Um, and sees the information. You know, Done that. how much of this is to be excused because you are a reporter? Well, that's another thing about this case, and the stories that I did certainly <laughs> was done in the public interest. These were stories of big... They always say that, right? It's uh, they do, but I think you have a hard time taking the diary of a young girl who, yes, is related to a politician, but is not in politics herself. Her diary had nothing to do with politics. It was just sheer, you know, invasion of privacy. Even if Ashley herself had turned over the diary to a journalist, is that worth printing? Is there a story in there? Very little. No news value. Right. And many people in the public don't understand that it's legal for journalists to publish things they have received as long as they did not do the illegal to acquire it or did not encourage it, did not induce it. You can print grand jury testimony if you received it over the transom, as we like to say. Well, there'll be a lot of people listening to this program right now who will think that what you just said is not right just not right. Well, then they would not want the publication of the Pentagon Papers to the original point that Rosemary made. The, the, uh, you know, they would the say that Rex Smith No, we, we well, so so you're in favor of the government covering up things. I'm in favor of being very careful about what you're well, doing and how you're writing. Me too. Well, being, being careful and using material illegally gotten are two different things, and I bring you to the Hillary Clinton emails in the 2016 election. They were stolen. They were stolen by an enemy of the state, by Russian operatives. Completely illegal, awful, and yet would you ignore what was in there? I wouldn't have. The information in the files is a completely separate issue than how the files were obtained. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. And I, and I can justify that as a journalist and say, you know, our job is to tell the story, not to commit crimes to get it, but to tell the story any more than you can trespass. I have confronted this problem as an editor with a reporter or photographer who trespassed to get a story and you suddenly realize we're in some legal hot water here. And you backpedal very quickly. Also, you get off the private property. Will you just refer us to that moment, which we all remember so well from the old days when somebody went up on somebody's porch? 
Oh, I think you're thinking of the incident of the Unabomber where yes. uh, reporters basically flooded the home in Schenectady where the brother of the Unabomber, David Kaczynski, lived. And that was really unfortunate, to put it mildly. Because you mean when, the, when reporters do bad things, it's unfortunate. Well, it was it, a several days siege. Several yeah. days, yeah. yes. But I remember going to a home of Jessica Hahn. Do you remember her? She was a Long Island yes. secretary who had a sexual relationship with a TV evangelist and I was a young reporter on Long Island and I stood outside her apartment and tried to become friends with the trombonist and her band from the church you know and now somebody a wise reporter was it up here who had flowers delivered to the Kaczynski yeah, I home yes. mm -hmm. I would have been on the front doorstep knocking on that door I think that this was a story of a domestic terrorist who had operated for years the brother played a material role in his finally being captured. It's absolutely a story of great public interest. I would have been on the doorstep knocking. I would have been part of that siege. And I blame Kaczynski's lawyers, who should have known. It's clear that would have happened. They should have been out of town. They were not protected. Not the journalist's fault. Just a great story about the death of Nelson Rockefeller, which we oh, may yeah. recall. <laughs> in Interesting circumstances. Uh, yes, yes. Very he, important story. He, As a matter of fact, I've always thought it's one of the most important stories. The former the vice president story. was hard at work on his memoir <laughs> with a research assistant when he right. suffered what it was ended up being a fatal heart attack. And there was a lot of cover-up, and a friend of mine was a clerk, what was then called a copy boy at the New York Times, who was dispatched to babysit the home of the ambulance driver. Now, stick with me here, the guy oh, wow. who drove the ambulance that picked up Nelson That's Rockefeller from his townhouse. And he was standing outside along with a couple other reporters who were there for a couple of days, and the wife of the ambulance driver came out and said, he's going to come out and give you a statement, and then will you leave? And they said, well, if he talks to us, then we're done. We'll leave. So he came out and he said, I have only this to say to you. I've never before picked up a corpse wearing a $400 suit and no underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so that, there you go. Great quote, huh? Anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Sorry, I just thought you'd appreciate annals from the history Wonderful. of journalism, folks. There you go. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, Rosemary Romeo, and Alan Shartok here. Media at WAMC.org is how you can tell your own stories. We'll be glad to hear them. We'll be glad to share your point of view here if you'd like to. Now, we think that news and content that appears on news things ought to be entertaining, right? But what do we think about this talk that CNN may be trying Trying to hire a comedian to handle its primetime lineup. You know, CNN, since the young Cuomo brother, Christopher, got pushed off the air, ever since that, they haven't quite known what to do with primetime. And now there is some talk about putting in somebody who might be more fun on top of that. Is this a good idea? Definitely. I think it's a fabulous idea. I hope it's Trevor Noah, but I'm happy with some of the other choices like Jon Stewart. Yes, it is comedic in presentation, but very deep in content. I think John Oliver, for example, does investigative reporting on a par with anything I've done, but with a tone and a sense of engagement that I wish that we would have been able to have affected in newspapers, but we're all so solemn and take ourselves so seriously, and we've lost public because of that. John Oliver and Trevor Noah have not lost audience, and their readers and and listeners know about stuff because of them. I think it's a great idea. I think if CNN does it, you're going to see all the other stations doing the same. Yeah. I don't think it's a terrible idea either. I think, you know, take note of the fact that we use editorial cartoons on opinion pages, yeah, which are designed point. to be entertaining, to give us a twist on the news. Note how popular the Gail Collins column in the New York Times is. Gail is 
brilliant. And she writes this really amusing column, a take on the news. I think there's a place for this kind of thing, as long as you also have the capacity to then move to serious news when there is important news that needs to be told, maybe breaking news. You want to have that opportunity available to you. But I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it, as long as we're not just simply yielding for laughs. If we're trying to make the news more interesting to people, what could be wrong with that? Oh, there's so much repetition on cable news and on primetime. In fact, all day long, you have the 7 o'clock hour is very similar to what you hear at 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock. I mean, there's a wealth of news out there in the world. Lord knows they could bring in different subjects, but they don't. It's the same thing hour after hour. I, w- I would really appreciate a breakup in that lineup. Why do you think they don't? Them. Perhaps they don't do it because it's cheaper and easier yeah. just to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Also, they're so politics-heavy and less hard news that they tend to like to go to their panels way too much. They do some reporting in the news, but then they talk about it for 20 minutes, and they tend to have the same experts on again and again, hour after hour. Mm. So what is it about this panelism? You know, the idea that you always have to have a panel standing by ready to dissect what has been said. Has that really ruined our contemporary news? Well, I mean, it's spawned imitators everywhere. I mean, you do it on WAMC. You have a panel you know, every morning. terrible way. We're doing it right here. here. We're doing it here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're cheap, right? I think to Judy's point, it's an inexpensive way to fill airtime. And it gives people a sense that they are hearing some really smart analysis. They are. <laughs> Especially Good point, when they bring in a reporter who's actually covered the well, story. That's yeah, that's the thing. It? It's who's on the panel that's yeah. a problem. CNN has just hired Adam Kinzinger. Corey Lewandowski was an analyst oh, at boy. one point. Sarah Palin has been a panelist. Bring in journalists who know how to get the experts and how to ask questions, not people who are players. They should be the news sources, not the news presenters. That's the real problem on the panels to me. You know, we've been down this road many times, and I'm sorry for bringing us there again, but Rex and I worked with a guy for years who was a fairly despicable person and who was always yelling about good journalism, how he was a journalist while others weren't. Ah, I was wondering where you're going here. (laughs) And so your point is that there are different types of journalists, that there are different people. Well, we, we don't have to go around on it again, but there's always a discussion about every five years on this program about who is a journalist and who isn't. Yeah, I would argue that some of the former officials are useful. Claire McCaskill, the former senator from Missouri, for example, who is a commentator on uh, MSNBC, I believe, I think provides insight and is useful and thoughtful about things. Endlessly. She's on every day. (laughs) Every show on MSNBC every day. No, it's way. way? No, I want to hear new voices. It's just like Judy said, there are as many news sources as there are stories out there that are untouched because we keep going back to the well. Good point. I'm bored with Claire McCaskill, and I like her very much. Yeah. yeah. yeah I didn't realize she was on that much. I don't How watch her. you bored with somebody and like them very much? <laughs> her, the first couple dozen times you hear her points, it's like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, oh, God, not again. Like us talking about how local news is dying, what can we do? <laughs> It's only the most important issue facing local communities in many parts of the country. I would say, by the way, if we're talking about a comedian perhaps running into prime time on CNN, we might talk about the other extreme, which is C-SPAN, which has for years been this boring outpost where you have a fixed gaze, only a few cameras, which are operated, by the way, by the what's called the house recording studio, the outfit that also tapes programs and commentaries that members send out to their districts. 
And now, of course, we saw during the election of Kevin McCarthy as speaker, they were free to roam and shoot video. And we saw some really much more interesting video showing actual interactions among members. And the question is, should that be allowed? Or here's the other side of it. Are members going to be just playing to the camera if they do that? Are they, well, some certainly will, won't they, Rex? Yeah. I would so, never do that personally. That, <laughs> is there a reason, you know, one <laughs> member, of, one Democratic member of the House was sitting there knitting, for example, and another was very... Uh, Katie Porter, you have to mention. Right. What was, what was the book she that was she was reading? There? Oh, yeah. How to give an F about. Yeah, something about that. It was really a noticeable. We can't sing remember. Singling her boredom. Yeah, we can't remember because there's an F word in it that right. we can't repeat. That we so. can only remember. But that, I love that this measure to uh, let C-SPAN run loose has bipartisan support. That means people on both sides of the aisle thought that they looked good when shown in their natural state to the public, including the representative who tried to take off and was going to punch out, I guess, Matt Gates and had to be held back. I did not think that that was back, a really favorable showing, but there is wide support for this. I hope it happens. I'm well, all in favor of access. Well, because people want to be amused, right? I mean, sure. no matter what. Sure. And it's I like court it, TV. Yeah, I think it would be more transparent, too, because if you watch regular C-SPAN, you get the sense that the people speaking at the lectern are actually speaking to a room when actually it's right. empty. Right. And it gives the American public the false impression that Congress is there at work when they aren't. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so put a camera in the room so we know who's there. Or will that actually put members back into their seats when they really could be doing more productive stuff than sitting there listening to somebody drone on with a useless speech? I don't know. You know, the congressional record is, of course, fraudulent because members are allowed to, you know, when they finish, they say, seek unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks, which means you can put anything you want in the congressional exactly. record after that. Mm-hmm. And so people do. And it gets revised. One of my jobs when I worked on Capitol Hill was to edit the boss's comments on the floor when the clerk produced them right away. The stenographer would take it down and then you get to fix it. So the grammatical errors are out of the way. And I think having a real camera there can offset that unreality that we get so that you can actually see if people are saying dopey things on the floor of the house. That would be useful. And it ought to be true, I think, we live in a visual world. We watch the world going around. TV is a lot more engaging than print in that regard, and it ought to be something pro forma that we ought to allow the cameras to have access. It would be a good thing. And in the Supreme Court, too, by the way. But oh, yeah. Nobody's, That's another whole issue. Nobody's and, about to allow that. And in every local court. So we talked last week or the week before about the Biden documents, that is, the material that was classified that was stored with the Corvette in Joe Biden's garage. And the question still lingers. We saw an interesting interview in Columbia Journalism Review with Margaret Sullivan, a former Washington Post and New York Times media analyst, former editor of the Buffalo News. And a friend of yours, right? Yes, a friend of all of ours. I mean, she's a wonderful, thoughtful editor and has been, I think, a really great contribution to dialogue about the role of media and how we're doing and how we're not doing good things. And the question is whether the media has distinguished itself, has done well in covering this, or whether the right would say that uh, the media has a double standard, that there has been less coverage of the Biden material than of the Trump material. The left would say trying to equate the two, trying to bend over backwards to cover the Biden stuff 
is simply a way of the press trying to curry favor with the right and its false equivalents. What do you think? Where are we on this? Subsequent to Margaret's interview, the New York Times came out with a long piece, was excellent, about how Biden messed this up so badly. And it really came out of, according to their reporting, the lawyers discovering a problem, knowing right away it was a big problem, contacting the DOJ, and then immediately following all of their instructions, including things like, no, don't look for anything else, don't touch anything, don't do anything, we're gonna send in a team. So they sit back thinking the feds are gonna come in, and now that looks, and it has been reported widely by the press as they knew they had a problem, and so they hid it during the midterms. That appears not to be the truth at all. I think that story, i.e. reporting by investigators for the New York Times, blows open the whole situation. And if it got any attention, which I don't know if it will from the right-wing media, it really does explain how Biden got into this fix. And it wasn't by manipulation by the White House, no. but that Obedience. is, as you say, it's not going to make a difference to the right wing. They're going to say this anyway. Right. There's going to be that equivalence. But every time there is an effort by the media to distinguish between a former president who intentionally withheld and then lied to the FBI about what he had and who obstructed legally required passage of documents back to the National Archives, every time there's a distinction between that and the apparent inadvertent few documents that were left in the former vice president's home. It's going to be a big deal. And the House Oversight Committee is now demanding, why aren't there logs for Joe yeah. Biden's home? Well, As if who, there are logs for any other um, right. ex, We ex, didn't even ex have logs from the Trump White House. We never knew who went in and out of the Trump White we House. We know who goes in and out of WAMC, I can tell you that much. Well, I mean, you have electronic records, yeah. too. I think that, that would be something. <laughs> and we know who goes in and out of the Biden White House. But you don't know who's going into the home of a former vice president. We don't have logs of who's going into Dan Quayle's home, do we? Jimmy Carter or yeah, who's, any I mean, president. My goodness, who is seeing Mike Pence these And that's fine. Perhaps we ought to. But it is presented in the right-wing media as if it's some further deficiency by Biden, further secrecy. And we're going to be seeing a lot of that. I think it will be very hard for us to have the kind of thoughtful coverage that exposes the hypocrisy and uh, sort of outrageous violations of standards of this House Oversight Committee with its right-wing members. Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ilk, uh, Lauren Boebert. It'll be hard to cover that fairly without looking like it's biased coverage uh, that is pro-Biden. Probably can't call it an inquisition, eh? (laughs) Too bad. The House Inquisition. All right. We are about out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, That would be all that we have time for. Well, I invented this show, and I'm delighted. (laughs) (laughs) that we're out of time Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick and I'm Rex Smith thanks to our producer David Gustina for serving up all of this red meat for us and thanks to you folks for joining us this week once again on the Media Project they've got a people's fight to wage tingling-ling newspaper guild got a free new world to build meet the people that's a thrill all together fits the bill oh newspaper men are such interesting people It's wonderful to represent the flow.
Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Greg Smith is the former editor of the Times Union and Substack columnist. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Mayo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at RPI. Listen to the Media Project online anytime at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>